Hello, this is Doug Hadaway. Welcome to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people on the planet. Long before the word purpose became a buzzword in business, Bill Novelli pioneered the use of marketing techniques to build a better world. He called it social marketing and co-founded the world's first agency devoted to the practice. Since then, he's run one of the most well-known and well-regarded international nonprofits and led one of Washington's most powerful advocacy organizations and launched a new program at Georgetown University's Business School. The Business for Impact program helps, quote, unleash the power of business to help people prosper and the planet thrive. He's out with a new book called Good Business, the talk, fight, win way to change the world. In this episode of Achieve Great Things, I talk with Bill Novelli about the lessons he's learned over 50 years of a remarkable career. Bill, let's start with a story. Tell us your favorite story of creating impact through the tools and techniques of marketing and communications. I'd like to tell two stories, uh, one of which um, you know about, Doug, because you've written about it. Um, And that's the story of the truth campaign. So for years and years, it was very difficult to get kids not to experiment and become addicted to cigarettes. Uh, And every appeal you can think of was tried. Uh, Don't smoke, it'll kill you. Well, they didn't care about that because they're immortal. Uh, You know, don't smoke, your breath will smell, you won't get a date. They didn't care about that because everybody was smoking. And finally, this little ad agency in Florida came up with this brilliant idea. And the idea was that kids are going to rebel. They always do. So instead of having them rebel against their mothers or their coaches or their rabbis, let's have them rebel against those guys in suits who are selling them tobacco and treating them as replacement smokers. And so that was the birth of the the truth campaign. And um, it wasn't just a campaign, they made it a brand, a marketing brand, and it became really successful. In fact, uh, it became so successful that the tobacco industry hated it and they rebelled against it. Um, And they accused the the Legacy Foundation of trying to uh, demonize the tobacco industry, which of course kids were doing. Um, And so from that um, came uh, really a big successful change in kids smoking and gotten it way down uh, to where it is today. So that's, that's a marketing story of marketing that works. Yeah, one of the most studied and celebrated public health campaigns in American history. Absolutely. For those, everybody who listens to this podcast is interested in marketing, communications, you know, for impact, but words like brand are understood in so many different ways. In this context, how are you using that? You said they created a brand out of it. Yeah, I think a brand is probably best described as um, it's a promise. Um, uh, it's a promise that you can build around. And um, if you have a, a really good brand, um, uh, it's authentic. Uh, people believe in it. It works in terms of um, both external audiences and internal. And this brand was really successful in doing both. And the sec- Doug, the second story I want to tell you is how marketing didn't work. So um, when I was at the campaign for tobacco-free kids, I had research showing that the public absolutely hated the tobacco industry. So I got the idea that um, maybe they would also intensely dislike 
people in the tobacco industry, the executives who were, who were working uh, to sell cigarettes. So I tried a campaign, I tested it, and I called it, does your mother know what you're doing? And uh, so I would take a tobacco executive, let's say it was a, a woman who was like the general counsel at Philip Morris. And I would describe her uh, and say, you know, she's a mother, she's got three children, she's a churchgoer, she's this, she's that, and she's selling your kids cigarettes. Um, and I tested this campaign and it didn't work. And what I realized was that while people disliked the industry, they were very uncomfortable demonizing individuals. It just made them uncomfortable. So we never went with the campaign. It was an example of uh, really an insight that didn't work. And a good example of why you should test things before yeah. you go out in the world with them. Yes, indeed. Interesting. So you've had a 50 year career of learning from successes and tests and failures. Uh, you didn't start out to change the world though. You started out marketing packaged goods to consumers, very sort of classic marketing job back in the Mad Men era of the sixties, I believe. And you were joined a hot advertising firm. And you mentioned a turning point on your career path. What was that turning point? What was going on in your career? Well, I started at Unilever and I worked my way up to brand manager. And then, as you say, I went to a hot New York ad agency. And in both cases, I was, I was marketing packaged goods. So laundry detergents, fabric softeners, kids cereals, dog food, cat food, you name it. And it was a good life. And I had little kids and there was no heavy lifting, but I had a big problem. And my big problem was I, I, didn't, I couldn't find any social relevance in what I was doing. And uh, it really bothered me. And one day I got lucky. I was assigned a new account by the ad agency, public television. And it was the first time they'd hired a, an agency to build audience. And the first thing I did was to go to a press conference. And it was put on by a woman named Joan Gantz Cooney. And she said to the media, um, I'm here to tell you that we're going to revolutionize kids' television. And of course, she was talking about Sesame Street. And I was listening to her and I thought, you know, this woman is an educator, but she's also really a marketing person. And I could use marketing uh, on issues, on ideas, on causes, just as well as I could on packaged goods. So that, that was the beginning of, that was an epiphany. And I, I figured out from there how to evolve a career all around that. Could you tell us more of the Sesame Street story? Like, how did you apply the way you marketed laundry detergent to helping one of the most iconic, <laughs> right, television brands? Yeah, well, um, there we come back to the idea of, of what is marketing. Yeah. And, um, you know, you think to yourself, um, uh, if you think, what is marketing? I always like to say, uh, you know, that old story about if you build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door. And what I always say is you don't start with a mousetrap and you don't start with the mice. What you have to do is you start with the consumer. You need a really relentless focus uh, on that target market. And you don't even have to be in that target market. So, you know, at the ad agency, one of my uh, target markets was female head of household and cat owning household. That's what, it, that's what it came down to. It's a target. Right? It's a target, but I wasn't <laughs> part of it. You don't have to be part of that target market. And the key to it all is you've got to have a relentless focus on behavior change. 
But I, I learned a lesson. I learned a key lesson, which is, you know, in marketing, you take your, your marketing tools, your marketing mix, you know, the product, the price, uh, the promotion, et cetera, and you apply it to individuals to get them to change behavior. But if you're dealing with social issues, if you're dealing with causes, the kinds of things that, that you work on and that I do, uh, that's not enough. You've got to really change social norms and expectations. And in order to do that, you need policy change. You need policy advocacy. So what I've learned is marketing is robust, but you need that policy advocacy as well. The marketing helps with individual behavior change, attitude change, but to really change society, you're going to have to change policy, change systems. Exactly right. Yeah, we'll talk about that uh, further. You were a pioneer at this time that we're talking about, or maybe soon after there, you said Sesame Street was your first introduction to what you ended up um, being part of launching and calling social marketing. Um, and that was a new thing, a new term. Uh, tell us more about that. What does that mean? What were you doing at that time of your career? Um, well, uh, I had a business partner uh, and he and I were together at the Peace Corps, a guy named Jack Porter. And we had similar backgrounds in advertising and marketing. So we decided that we would start a company. And we said, what do we know? Well, we know marketing, we know marketing communications. We'll apply that to what Washington is all about, which we naively thought was health and social issues. And you and I know better, but that's what we, that's what we did. Um, and um, we were practitioners and we worked on things like um, high blood pressure, uh, cancer control, uh, mental health, recycling. Uh, and we brought in academic theorists and together we pioneered in social marketing. But what's interesting in looking back is that um, uh, all those clients were government and nonprofit organizations. Companies were not there yet. They weren't seeing what, what we were trying to do. Um, and then we joined, we, we merged into a big ad agency, Needham Harper Worldwide. And they loved us. They said, you know, you're doing what we're not. The, we, we understand that the answer to every problem is not a 30 second TV commercial. And we said, yes, that's right. And they, they had capital, which we needed to grow. And they had a big client list, which we could cherry pick for new business. And then they joined with other big ad agencies into uh, something called Omnicom. So now it's even bigger and we got a bigger client list. Um, and um, we were selling, if you will, integrated marketing communications. And that's still the name of the game today. Explain that term to folks who don't know what integrated marketing communications is. Well, the idea is that if you think about marketing, you're thinking about all different kinds of communications. So advertising, PR, promotion, uh, direct response, all these different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, if you try to go out and do them piecemeal or hire somebody to help you do them piecemeal, it becomes very difficult. And what we were doing was we were integrating all that into a whole so that a client could say to us, okay, here's my, here's my marketing problem. And we could build a response around all those different, all those different disciplines. Mm -hmm. And of course, you're understanding and using the tools of marketing, market research, strategic thinking, right? 
and then all these practical tools, direct mail, events, you know, we have so many tools now. Right. But you went from the marketing side to the operational side and the leadership side. You were at well-known and well-regarded and influential nonprofits like CARE and AARP, one of the most influential advocacy organizations in this town of Washington, um, launched a new program at Georgetown's Business School. But in your book, you say, at my core, I'm still a marketing guy. <laughs> so there's all this knowledge about marketing, but what else is it? What else is it about this marketing mentality, I guess I would call it, that contributes to the success of all these kind of different organizations? Well, I, I really think that marketing, and I'll say marketing communications, or even just communications, um, are really, really important to any organization. And I think that uh, oftentimes they can be and should be pathways to the top of the organization. Um, and while I was going through my, my period, you know, I decided that my, my career goal was that I wanted to make significant contributions to solving major social problems. And if you're going to do that, um, you need to go beyond a discipline. You need to really lead an organization. And that's, that's what I set out to do. Uh, and so, so for me, uh, marketing is not just itself important, but it's a pathway to the top. And you can apply that thinking. I think you said earlier when we were talking about brands, apply the thinking to your external sort of audience that you're looking to motivate and mobilize, but also internally. That yes. this kind of thinking helps you be a good leader. Yeah, exactly. And you know, Doug, um, the sub subtitle of the book is, uh, you know, the talk fight win way to change the world. Mm. And that's something that I learned early on. You know, if you look at um, the issues of today, uh, environmental and social issues, they're way, way too big for endless combat. We've got to figure out how to get everybody at the table. Mm. I don't care if it's tobacco or pharmaceuticals or climate change, you name it. Um, we've got to get everybody at the table. We're not always going to agree but we can talk and we can fight in order to win the day. Interesting. And good business is the super title of the book. Um, in it, you write about research showing that a, a sense of purpose can drive business success. And there's a lot of interesting research coming out about that. A lot of our clients here at Hathaway and a lot of our podcast listeners, as one CEO told me, you all live in the world of purpose, right? working on causes, working with foundations, nonprofits, government, areas we refer to, and you refer to in your book as civil society. What lessons does civil society need to learn from business? Well, um, the first thing I would say is uh, that it's not a one-way street, that business and civil society can learn from each other. Mm. And I think that um, uh, the management skills between those two, between uh, for-profit and civil society, the management skills are coming closer and closer together. Um, and one of the most powerful things that civil society has is most of these organizations have powerful missions. And companies are learning from that. Companies are seeing that purpose comes from powerful missions. Uh, and so they're incorporating this into what they do. Um, and it's really, it, it's really a two-way street. I like to talk about people crossing the bridge between the two and even crossing into government as well. And that's when we're gonna see real progress, when you can cross the bridge in all directions. 
Absolutely. So let's stay focused on civil society for a minute, the nonprofit world. Um, tell us a story about a nonprofit functioning at peak performance, you know, creating real impact while being a, a well-run organization and a great place to work. What, what comes to mind? Well, I'm, I'm not sure uh, that I know any organizations in any sector <laughs> at peak performance. Right. <laughs> I mean, we all, we all know that there's a lot of work to do no matter where you are. Yep. But, uh, but I have two nonprofits in my mind. Uh, one is the American Heart Association. Uh, so they, they've really done a great job helping to drive reductions in heart disease and cerebrovascular disease. They innovate. Uh, they're working on brain health because the risk factors are the same. Um, they work through this uh, COVID uh, fundraising crisis pretty well. Um, and the leader of the American Heart Association is Nancy Brown. And, and I think she's a real leader, a bona fide leader. And then the other one I have in mind um, is Care USA. And you probably know them because you've worked mm -hmm. with NGOs. Um, and uh, I, I think that um, they're doing a great job. They have an international network of NGOs. Uh, they focus really heavily on girls and women's empowerment, which is a big opportunity throughout mm -hmm. the world. Um, they're paying a lot of attention right now to the COVID crisis in India. And Michelle Nunn, who is their CEO, is a strong leader. So both these women I see as, as in strong leadership roles. And, um, you know, you've talked about the power of, of visual, uh, visionary leadership. I think that's what these two women represent. Mm. And I think that's two good reasons why uh, their organizations are doing well. Yeah, indeed. I know them well as do many people in this country because of the they're iconic organizations, but they have strong, long legacies, but are still making impact today. And in fact, Hadaway Communications has worked with Care USA and the American Heart Association. So we've learned a lot from them as well. Well, let's talk about government. You're, you said your first foray into social marketing was working with a government agency. So tell a story about government creating positive impact and what advice do you have for people in government today who really wanna make a difference? Um, well, I did that stint at the Peace Corps, and it, it was a wonderful time for me. And then at Porto Novelli, the first big client we had was the National High Blood Pressure Education Program. And it was run by a government agency, the, uh, the National Heart Lung Blood Institute at NIH. And here was a government uh, doing what today we think of as really robust uh, coalitions. And they did a great job. And the advice I have for government people is uh, stay strong. Government is not the problem. Government is clearly a part of the solution. It's a catalyst for change. And um, one of my favorite quotes is Bill Gates. He said, the public sector's investments unlock the private sector's ingenuity. And I think that's right. They are a catalyst for change. We need all three sectors working together if we're gonna have a competitive, demographic, excuse me, democratic American society. Um, and I have an example. I have a Georgetown student who is at HHS uh, and he's working on how HHS can support tech companies uh, coming to market to create healthier aging. Now, I think that's a perfect example of a catalyst. 
you're saying, and you'd use the word coalitions. Is that what you're talking about? The part of the success in government is to work across those boundaries with business and nonprofits and others? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I see that across the board. It's not easy and government does have its restrictions and the business sector isn't perfect and we know all this, but those coalitions are important. But even beyond coalitions, Doug, I, I see uh, government as as helping to, to catalyze. I mean, look at NIH, for example. Yeah. The research they do is changing the world. Absolutely. We work with a lot of philanthropists and foundations of all shapes and sizes. You heard the word, you hear that word catalyzed quite a lot. Yeah. Um, a lot of the folks in the foundation and in the nonprofit world, of course, and social movements um, feel a real urgency to, quote, change the system, right? Systemic change is a big theme. Um, and in your book, I was interested to read that one lesson you learned early in your career was to stress the system is how you put it in the book. What does that mean? Well, this was a, a good lesson for me back in the early days. So the, uh, the physician, he was a young uh, uh, cardiologist named Ted Cooper. He didn't know anything about social marketing. Uh, he knew about heart disease and he was planning this high blood pressure program. And he had three committees, Doug. He had a patient committee, he had a public committee and he had a professional committee. In those days, professional was all docs. Yep. And, and the physicians came and they said, okay, we've studied the issue and we see that we can make a difference in high blood pressure control. So we're gonna inform the professional community and that'll take us about 10 years. And then you can tell the public. And this young doc said, the hell with that. He said, I'm gonna stress the system. We're gonna tell everybody at once and we're gonna work up and down. Um, and that was a lesson that I, I took to heart. And I, I think system change is really hard. It's, it's a lot like culture change. Um, and they're both difficult and they both, once again, they both need leadership. Strong teams, a good internal coalition, a big goal to rally around and to measure against. Um, and, and I think an important thing is to, is to celebrate short-term wins. You know, you can't, wait, you can't wait three years till you do something. Uh, by that time, people have forgotten what they were up to in the first place. Yep. Um, and I think COOs, chief operating officers, are really important. Uh, that's oftentimes an unsung hero kind of a, a position. COOs are important because they can work to help implement, to help create system change. So a good example in my mind is Tom Nelson. He's now the CEO at Share Our Strength. But when I was at uh, AARP as the CEO, he was the COO. And he put state offices, 53 of them into place around the country and in territories. And as a result of that, we became so much better at advocacy at state and federal levels. So that's an example of system change and the, what COOs can contribute. So stress the system, don't think you can cherry pick, right? You need to deal with all of the stakeholders within a system if you're actually gonna change it. Yeah. And, it's, and that story tells me too that um, a lot of people and folks who come to us are looking to change hearts and minds, which of course is part of it people within a system, their beliefs about the system and so forth and 
are a big part of that, but there's a lot of tangible processes and procedures and things like that that have to change as well. There is, there is. But you know, um, I know, I know that you're big on storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think that storytelling is absolutely critical. Uh, lots of times today on NPR or at sales meetings or conventions or conferences, you know, people are telling stories, but they're not always strategic. They're not always on strategy. And if you've got the evidence, if you've got the data, and you combine that with really good storytelling, mm -hmm. then I think you can move mountains. Absolutely. Yeah, we call it strategic storytelling. It's interesting how the idea of storytelling is really catching on, I think, as people in senior management hear about the brain science and the research showing it's the most powerful way to communicate. But you can waste a lot of time if you don't do it strategically. <laughs> to yeah, your point. for sure. Well, at Georgetown, um, you've created a center at the business school called Business for Impact, which, as we've heard from your career, you've been on the leading edge of this trend in business, which is really catching on now, to be driven by a clear sense of purpose. We talked about it a bit before. And purpose is a big buzzword in corporate circles. So let's get down to defining that, thinking now of folks in business. How do you define purpose for a business? Well, I think of it as um, doing well by doing good. Mm. Uh, and what I mean by that is that um, uh, you know, this idea of the power of purpose, it's, it's building social and environmental strategies into your core business. If you can do that, that, that's the sweet spot. And what that does basically is it helps you with your financial performance uh, to gain a competitive edge, uh, to attract and, and to keep talent, um, and to create value for society. So that triple bottom line of people, planet, profit, and you need all three you're doing well by doing good. Um, and you got to do it in harmony. Uh, it's not easy to do that. There are some companies that just have a heck of a time figuring out how to create purpose. But more and more companies are figuring it out. And they're moving along that continuum towards greater and greater purpose. Not just because uh, you know God told them to or it's altruism or they're going to go to heaven. Because it fits people, planet, profit. And profit has to be part of it. What's an example of a business you think has has figured that out? I think a good example is the VF Corporation. Hmm. Um, and this is a huge company that few people have ever heard of. It has all these iconic brands. Like it's a holding North, company. Yeah, it's a holding company. Exactly. Yeah. So they've got the North Face and Timberland and yep. Vans. And um, they've got about a million workers around the world in Bangladesh, Cambodia, Vietnam, you name it. These workers do not uh, are not VF employees. They work for contract factories. But VF plays ver pays very close attention to them, and they say, we're going to treat them like our own. Now, why do they do this? Number one, they say it's the right thing to do. So they have that sense of moral imperative. Mm. But secondly, they do research among these. Uh, most of these workers are women. And they do research among them, and they say, what do you need to do a better job? and to live a better life. And these women say things like, well, we need clean water. We need childcare. We need eyeglasses. We need protection from sexual harassment on the job. And then VF tries to provide that through care and other NGOs on the ground. So not only is it a moral imperative, but it improves productivity and that improves profit. 
And the other thing is, uh, you know, these millennials and younger consumers, they, they want to know before they buy a brand that the company that made that is uh, essentially treating its workers well. And so that's a key part of this too. So that's triple bottom line. Absolutely. And that example does show how you said that's all in heart, not making your money over here and being nice over there. It's doing the right thing increases productivity, which is of course good for the bottom line. That's it. That's yeah, it. And increases consumer loyalty. Yeah. Um, well, you end the book and there's a lot we could talk about in this book, Good Business, The Talk Fight, Win Way to Change the World. Um, but let's focus on this idea of purpose. And we just talked about businesses finding the purpose. You also talk about individuals finding their purpose. You make the good point that that can happen at any age or stage in their life. Um, so what's your advice for someone at any age or stage in their life trying to figure out their own purpose? Well, I, yeah, I like to say that no matter where you are and no matter what stage you're in, you can make a dent in the universe. And, and here's, here's how I think about it, Doug. Number one, um, I think it's really important to be part of an organization we can be proud of. Um, and a lot of people are not. So years ago, I was speaking at a McKinsey conference and I was talking about social impact. And after I was done, this uh, uh, guy from a major, major corporation stood up and he said, I, I really like what you said. He said, but we can't all do what we love. So we have to learn to love what we do. And I said, really? Do you want to spend your career trying to learn how to love what you do? It's so much better to belong to an organization that you can love, that's doing what you care about. So, so organization is important. And then the second thing is, I think, motivation. Um, you know, usually it's not money that motivates people. Uh, it's opportunity. It's opportunity to learn and to contribute to others and to do something uh, that's bigger than, than ourselves. And as my MBA students and, and our alumni put it, they say, um, we want purpose as well as a paycheck. And your program that you started is called Business for Impact at Georgetown University's Business School. The book is Good Business, The Talk, Fight, Win, Way to Change the World. And Bill, Bill Novelli, a guy who's made more than a dent in the <laughs> universe. <laughs> Thanks for spending this time with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Doug. Great talking to you. Bye-bye.